netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour, standing in again for John Montgomery, who will be back uh, soon. And we uh, hope you're feeling better, John. As I uh, said last week uh, on the podcast uh, for Smile, this week we're going to be talking to the multiple Academy Award winning Rob Legato. Uh, I've always enjoyed interviewing uh, Rob and both John and I have been lucky enough to uh, meet him many times. Really great guy, but also just a, such an interesting visual effects supervisor. Uh, we're here discussing the film Emancipation, which has been uh, a remarkable story, a true story uh, of uh a uh, slave called Peter who became the symbol of slavery around the world. So it's a true story, sensitively told, but in an incredibly interesting way. So uh, hopefully you'll really enjoy, as I did, uh, this interview with uh, Rob Legato. So thanks for agreeing to do this. You're welcome. My pleasure, always. So this sounded like it was a heck of a shoot. If I uh, understand correctly, you got hit by... Hurricanes, uh, lightning, uh, storms, heat. Um, it was just an incredibly I, tough on-location shoot. It was like nothing I've ever experienced in terms of the, the physical elements. You know, where uh, you know I never had a stop for um, uh, for being overheated. That never really ever occurred. Where someone said, "I'm sorry, you have to stop and and find a, a shade for 15 minutes." It's like I, I've never experienced that before. And uh, then, um, uh, and the heat index was enormous. It was incredible. And part of our problems in the movie were that, um, you know, put a call out for extras and they all, you know, excited to do it day one. Day two, not as excited about being in wool outfits in 110 degree heat and, you know, 100 plus percent humidity. And then a guaranteed uh, uh, lightning storm of which everybody has to run for cover and wait 30 minutes from the last lightning strike before you go back to work. And then then the capper, of course, is having a hurricane that takes you out and takes your sets out for three weeks. So besides all the rest of the bugs and the snakes and the alligators and the you know, it was the arduous thing I've ever done. Yeah, because the film decided to shoot in the actual location that is historically where the story takes place, mm -hmm. right? That's, yeah. Yes. So, and you were second unit directing and obviously visual effects supervising. Yeah. Um, do you mind if we discuss the visual effects first? I do want to discuss sure. the, the second unit directing, but I particularly want to discuss the battle. So I'll leave that for a second if I can. So, okay. Um, so how did you approach the uh, the film, given, of course, that it's, you know, such a location-specific uh, setup? I mean, how did you decide to go about, I presume, unobtrusively as possibly, uh, because you didn't want to get in the way of such uh, powerful acting? Well, th yeah, that was, I mean, that's a huge component of this film, is to make sure that you're not introducing kind of movie um you know, flourishes that uh, while are fun and entertaining to watch, you know, I'm not sure you you would want to call this movie entertaining in that regard. It's it, it's basically putting a mirror up to American life as depicted at that time, of which we're still suffering some of the consequences of to this day. So it's not like not quite like, well, that's ancient history and that went away. It's where we came from and so to add um and do things that are, are tend to be more artificial 
and that you get away with in other movies because it's kind of fun. If you're in a Michael Bay film, you could do, you know, a crazy car crash. You could do crazy camera moves and 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 really entertain the the the, the manner of filming to excite the eye. This one, not so much. You 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 really try to depict it as it must have been like. Uh, and uh, and not distract from the uh, the seriousness of the story, and the seriousness of you know it's it's hard to make light of of what you're watching. And, and, yeah, and make it I'm trivial. Looked, it's such a dehumanizing period, and and I should add that Australia uh, has its own uh, shameful past when it comes to to these issues. But it seemed to me that the word sensitive came up a lot in the discussions and in the press stuff that I saw. It seemed like that was like the predominant thing to, I mean, obviously you were making a film, but you were trying to be sensitive to the material and to the history. And, and to the people portraying it, I, you, you know, as a, as a, 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 a white person kind of going in the middle and using your expertise that you've developed over the years to tell this story, you're asking people to portray enslaved people to do dehumanizing things for camera, for, you know, to, for story emphasis. And at first I thought it was going to be really uncomfortable because it's it's very difficult to ask somebody to do something that you you are kind of repulsed by. Um, but we found in an interesting way is that all the actors and the extras who were portraying the enslaved people were super willing and made it easy to be able to ask them to do these things because they wanted an accurate portrayal of what it really must have been like. And I think it helped their performances as well to feel what it felt like and be and, and be true to that story. So at first it was a, a little daunting. Um, and then you kind of, you know, say, you know, this is the shot. This is what we have to do. You're being thrown into a pit with, you know, and it's in the middle of this like incredible heat and and discomfort and and you know the uh, but you're asking somebody to do it and they are gladly doing it and so yeah you, you felt very much that you had to honor uh uh them willing to put themselves through that emotionally and physically because their ancestors did that for real you know so that was that's the, that, that's the part i think that they kind of got behind is i'm doing justice to my my ancestors who lived this story for real uh and they get to portray it so they want to be very very sensitive to their own past their own history their own uh, you know honoring their own uh, um, uh, struggles that they're they're literally their family members because a lot of them come from there and they i'm sure a lot of them were in and amongst the the uh plantations that were uh were, that, that we were filming at so yeah there's a shot in the making of when it showed the director playing amazing grace at uh yes. it was like day 56 for do you want to just explain what that was? Because it just the look on the actors' faces clearly they're not even acting at this point. They're just it's behind the scenes footage. It's amazing. No, they're just reacting. You know, and that's what you really want in a movie is you don't want people to act, especially if they're not trained actors. You need them to react. You set up real life and then photograph it. So what we did, and what Antoine did, is he played this very soulful music, um, and it automatically puts you into a mood or a tone um, as you're hearing the words and you're hearing the the, the music uh, that is created by the people as a, as a way of surviving the worst of it. Um, and they were immediately moved by, as, as the crew was as well. And we then started filming real life. 
you know, uh, uh, I had one of the cameras, you know, there was, a, you know, obviously Bob Richardson operates and then we had another operator and myself and we would just find moments of real reactions to, to, um, you know, uh, uh, establish the sense of place. And, uh, and it worked extremely well because, you know, without it, we're asking them to do artificial things with it. It's you're immediately put into that time and place. And, uh, and the fact that, you know, it, that what we're depicting is a moment where you thought everything was going to be okay. Freedom. So what does freedom mean to you at that moment? That must be everything. And there is a moment of joy, even though it's tinged with what we know history to be, which is it's not, it wasn't the end. It was the beginning of, of an end, but it wasn't the end for sure. Um, and that music came about after that, where they now are continuing to struggle with the prejudice that was created uh, and, and, and manufactured to even have a person as as an, as an enslaved worker on your on your place, you have to make them artificially um, demonized or different so that you can feel okay that you know well they're they're this group of people or that group of people so it must be okay and we're we're living with that you know ridiculous notion to this day uh, where you know we haven't really learned that lesson we are demonizing people all over the place. You know, well, look, I look I, forward to coming back and discussing your directing of the action uh, a bit later. But let me, it is a technically incredibly interesting film. So if, if uh, respectfully not wanting to move on from that, but let's discuss some of the technical aspects. And I sure. think one of the most startling aspects for me is your use and innovative kind of approach to colour. Maybe you could discuss that because at first I thought, oh, they've shot this black and white. And then I thought, well, no, it's not black and white. And then I'm like, hang on a second. There's a lot of really interesting thing in here. The skies, for example. Uh, but just the, the even the skin tones on Will Smith were just fascinating. How, how did you go about that? I, well, I mean, one of it is built into my belief that even if you want to shoot black and white, you should shoot, shoot in color for a couple of reasons. And the reasons being is that uh, back in the day, depending on the scene or the shot, you would put a red filter on, say, if you want the skies to go darker to get a little more contrast. You would use a green filter for other reasons for uh, to emphasize the the, the, the greenery. They, that would be lighter and everything else would be darker. So create contrast with that. And the same thing with blue. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of deep into manipulating color film. Um, so the idea is that when you go to turn something into black and white, you have three filtered black and white images that you could add or subtract how much contribution of that particularly filtered black and white layer is going to have on the final product. Example being, if you want the sky to go dark, you would drop the blue layer down to almost nothing, increase the red layer, which has you know, which has the most contrast, you know, uh, in terms of making the sky darker and then lay back in color on top of that. So you still have a really dark, dark sky with a little tinge of color and a little tinge of um, of, of the other things in which we wanted it obviously to be muted because we were depicting, um, uh, you know, the viewpoint of the, of the people we were portraying the world was not beautiful and exciting and 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 you know gone with the windish color. It was something else, and the, and stylistically we 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 use that that, that uh, avenue of of desaturation, making it kind of um, uh, um, not ugly but not prettified. 
And so basically what I'm doing is I'm taking the three different color layers, I'm manipulating them to find what would have been the good black and white image. And the same thing with skin tones and things like that. If you drop out red um, and now you're using green and blue as the primary black and white image, skins get darker or lighter depending on how you want to manipulate it. And then when you print the color back in to a very minor degree, you now have, you know, a, 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 a patina uh, of, of, you know, more dark skinned uh, people that were back then they were less intermarried. So there was definitely uh, a sense that, that, that um, it's not like what we see now because everybody's been, you know, it's been generations and generations of, 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 uh, um, uh, interaction, but back then it probably was not. It was very, it was very limited. So that helped, you know, uh, uh, gauge that a bit as well. And uh, and so it, it that's was was essentially the use of of that. And uh, we wanted the skies to go black and dark, uh, contrast with the uh, white clouds or birds or anything else. We wanted to basically get rid of a lot of the green that made it feel lush and make it feel you know, a little burned out, a little, uh, um, you know, um, more scrubby looking than anything else. I mean, it's, it's even hard to make the swamp not beautiful, even in black and white, because uh, it, it's an amazing image. But we spoke ages ago about uh, the work you did on Aviator, and of course that was like a lot of really interesting color manipulation. But of course, I just assumed on this film that you'd done this in post, and then I discovered that in fact you'd done a lot of work to make sure that on set you were seeing uh, yes. some of this. Could you discuss that? Because that idea of doing it on set is kind of, I mean, it's great, but it's a lot more uh, effort to to pull that off. Well, I mean, it's, it's part and parcel with uh, Bob Richardson. Um, uh, uh, Bob's style of photography is obviously he's a brilliant cameraman, but the the manipulation and the color printing with windows and all the various things to to emphasize what he was doing when he originally captured the material. It's like the idea is that when you go to shoot something, you don't really fully capture what it, you want it to look like because you have to print it. Like Ansel Adams didn't just take a snapshot. I mean, he he was a master printer and and the way the identity of a Ansel Adams picture was the way he physically printed and manipulated the negative that he shot. So Bob is you know similar in that regard. So we had to create uh, and we did it literally on the makeup day. You know, I had my ideas and Bob and I spoke about it. I had my ideas of how I would tackle it. And literally live through Resolve on the makeup, uh, we're shooting makeup tests and various things. We were starting to play with it. So as we're photographing it, I'm seeing a live image through Resolve and I'm, I'm playing with all the different controls. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, that looks like it. And Antoine said, that that's the movie. That's what it should look like. And then we just perfected that a little more. So, and then we had a live, um, we had a colorist that was literally in my trailer. We had a, uh, we shared a trailer and he would all day long, basically color correct the work to make it look like the way Bob and I wanted it to look. And I was shooting second unit as well. So I was, I had my material that I was shooting with the idea that I'm going to window this, I'm going to add this particular manipulation. I want to see a little more red blood in this. So I have to manipulate my color separation, you know, idea into something that uh, now allowed red where I wanted red to show up to, to come into the interview. So it was, it was kind of like you're doing a DI every day. 
And, um, and, you know, then that's where the film gets cut. And I think it affects the way you edit because now you don't have to guess the emotional impact of something. You have it or not based on the, on the dailies. I was also really interested. Uh, I, I know that you shot this on the red, but I was interested that you were doing such low light stuff because you were shooting some really high ISO on this, weren't you? And then, of course, you still need to be able to play with those separate yeah. uh, layers, which could be a noise issue in of itself. It, it was a noise issue. I'm, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, Bob liked to do it. I'm, I'd like to do it less. I like, you know, to start with a really strong, uh, heavy negative. That's that, you know, and and obviously the. The, the you know how digital cameras work is that there is no higher ISO. You're just pushing the limits of the of the of, the, of, the, of what you captured. There's no more light. If you set it to 3200 ASA, you don't get more light hitting the chip. It's you get it's the same. You just have now uh, um, artificially gained up the image and and when you gain up anything just sort of like pushing film you get grain you get noise you get all the rest of the stuff so part and parcel of our dailies was also due to noise reduction pass because the more i manipulate through the this sort of uh, pushing the color uh you know through these this kind of filtration you do pick up noise and so we had a we had to do a you know even for dailies do a noise reduction pass so i think you shut up to five thousand iso didn't you yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a specialized case for one shot. There, the red. There's only one scene that was shot in in black and white, you know, real black and white. And that was um, this red camera that is you know only has one layer, um, uh, and it, I think it skips the whole Debeer uh, uh, thing when you only have one black and white layer. Uh, and and it's pretty pretty clean even at five thousand ASA. But there's only one. We you know traditionally. I mean, I, I'm less of a fan of this than Bob is, but um, uh, I traditionally like to keep it at 800 if I can, the na- whatever the native rating of the chip is. And then we went to 1280 and 1600. And once you go beyond that, you start to get into some shit that you don't really like, you know, that you have to do some post work to, to fix and clean up. Yeah. Also, I thought it was interesting in this uh, sort of way of not making it beautiful, obviously, in a uh creative sense you wanted to underscore the mood the battle sequence was shot with reduced shutter which had a kind of again a grittier feel to it at least it felt like that when i was watching it yeah Uh, we actually shot a lot of it in slow motion uh to pick and choose which moments we're going to keep and of course when you shoot in slow motion and you decide okay i'm going to make it now 48 frames a second or 24 frames a second you you've shot it with a reduced shutter you know, right. if you skip print something of a shot of 48, you're going to get a 90-degree shutter instead of a 180-degree shutter. So there didn't seem to be a lot of slow motion. So was it the intent to have more slow motion or you just liked the look? Uh, no, there was an intent to have more of it than you see. And, and it was difficult to choose, uh, um, uh, you know, pick and choose which moments were which moments. Because, uh, you know, we do have a, a schedule to keep as well. And so to shoot it two or three times uh, for different speeds was was something that uh, we didn't entertain, in particular because it was going to rain and then we have to go for cover. And some days we literally were shut down because it, it, lightning storms happened so many times. So we had, you know, we basically shot when we could. And uh, and then we, we chose to do this. And I actually did some tests for Bob of if we want to shoot at 48 but not really use it, can we add some motion blur back in so it didn't, not every shot felt like it was 
a little Saving Private Ryan-ish, you know. We didn't really want to imitate that look, uh, but part and parcel of shooting in slow motion and, and then skip printing it gives you that. Anyway, when we saw it and we saw, you know, early cuts of it, we liked it. And so we kept it. You know, it was like, yeah, they added a, a different quality to it. You know, Ridley Scott did it for Glady, uh, Gladiator and obviously uh, Stephen did it for Saving Private Ryan. And it seems to you know, make the, make it feel a little more authentic, I guess. I don't know what why. They, yeah, no, I, it did. It felt, well, it just felt grittier, right? And of course it was a harsh um, environment. Hey, uh, the other thing I was thinking about was there was this sort of visual language that you introduced, which I think came directly from you uh, with drone footage. And the, and the reason yeah. I say that, and it seems like an odd thing, but it had a, an observational um, sort of like surveillance feel to it. Now I know that's a modern concept but with the slavery these drone shots from above just felt like i don't know that the that the the slaves were being observed and it just felt really appropriate can you talk about that sure i i don't know that that was the intent uh it actually happened early on i went with bob to the locations and to see the locations we used drone drones just to physically see you know where where we might film because it's very pretty difficult to get to get to um, and as we're just trying to kind of figure out the movie and the color palette and the various things, I, in my hotel room, start cutting these things together. And I was in a boat with my, my iPhone and what, what came to mind, um, you know, how these things from your past sort of surface is the shining, the shining created this tone with the music and the way the camera looked and the kind of the wide angle looked and a little bit of roll or in my head it was there was roll um that changed kind of the timber of the movie a bit to now say that that setup of that drone footage that essentially back then was helicopter footage gave you a sense of foreboding about the place that you're in and it didn't directly address what you were saying about being observed but it was something that set, um, uh, especially with the music and, and everything, we, I, I, you know, it was a short, like five minute clip we sent to Antoine who loved it because it, it kind of did, maybe he interpreted more the way you did. Uh, and mine was that incredible tone I got the first time I saw The Shining with that weird music and that landscape and something that could be beautiful, had an eerie kind of quality to it. And so that so that became the vocabulary, became you know, what we were doing. But I assume in the early stages that was like a you know sort of drone one might buy that has whatever that feeds your iPhone. But in the filming of the actual performances, you must have upped the level. Oh, yeah, we had we hired a you know a drone a very good drone company that I worked with on um, Ambulance, uh, uh, Michael Bay's film, completely different film than this one. Um, <laughs> very different uh, drone. And and they were very good. And we wanted to do, uh, you know, the FPV version of a drone, right? The, uh, the, the one that you could then fly and look like a pilot. So you could fly through trees and various things. We wanted to do that, but those are not stabilized um, uh, because that's not the way they do it. So we got them to stabilize it. So we got, I was able to hand operate, you know, with wheels uh, and the pilot could now navigate and go through things that otherwise you could not do and also be stabilized. And the ambulance wasn't stabilized. It was just swooping cameras and doing you know, stuff which adds to the excitement of that particular film. In this one, we weren't doing it to add excitement necessarily. We're doing it to 
create this bird's eye view of foreboding. Um, and maybe if I thought it and said it was more like it was being intruding and spying on people, I, it would probably have sounded better than my foreboding uh, version of it. But that's <laughs> what we were doing. Uh, uh, th that's what we were, we were attempting to do. And so every time they would go off in the run in as they were running away, you would probably introduce this footage that say, okay, this is this place that they're at, which is not, um, uh, you know, safe Harbor. It is difficult and, and they're in for an, the next chapter of, of, of shit that they have to go through. So those top shots looking straight down, which really where the stabilizing just works so beautifully, it's as if you've got a massive technocrane. Um, was that like, what kind of resolution is that coming off it? Or was it, did you get a 6k? Six K, right? Okay. Uh, the, the, there's a heavy lift version of it, and there's a lighter version that a um, Komodo would be on. That would that would uh, film that. So the Komodo, I think, was was four or six K, depending on the speed. If we change speeds, it would it would be less. Um, <clears throat> and then the heavy lift had the uh, the the, the, main, the big red camera on it, and that was at eight K. There's a couple of really iconic visual effects sequences in the film, so I'm going to jump onto those if I can, and then I'd like to discuss that battle. But um, I'm wondering, could you talk us through, because the uh, alligator attack, I almost said crocodile, but wrong country, <laughs> was in a tank, right? That was actually not on the location. You well, there's parts that? that were on location. Uh, the above ground, uh, the above water stuff I shot with uh, uh, Will's stunt double, and uh, we brought a legacy um, uh, animatronic tail. And uh, I filmed it kind of live action style where, you know, I knew a couple things that he was coming out of the water and going to stab the, 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 the creature. And I kept on shooting it until I find these little cherry pick bits and pieces that I would then glue together with what we're going to film underwater um, in a tank, in the safety of a tank. And the, the thing I wanted to do and try was, because uh, it made the most sense to me, is uh, build a, basically a giant aquarium in front of a TV set. And, and the TV set has the uh, has the background, murky, you know, uh, um, uh, dark, um, ugly, you know, swamp bottom enough so you can see it. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, you can't really film in that uh, healthily with, uh, you know, with your eyes open and things like that. So we basically created, a you know, a, a, an aquarium in front of a TV set, which is in the TV sets, the LED wall. And the aquarium was a 25 foot specially built tank um, um, uh, that, uh, you know, was an engineering feat to get the thickness of the glass to withstand that kind of pressure and have an open area that didn't need extra support. So it was, it was a bit of a deal and get it heated. Even the heating of it couldn't be as hot as we would like it um, because then it would start to weaken the, uh, the, the, the plexiglass and make it bow, which would create a disaster on the stage. So that portion, but what, what was, what we were able to do and there's pictures of it is, um, is be able to film from outside the tank being able to move the camera, but not too much because you didn't want to violate that. You know, we're in, we were in sort of, uh, 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 we want to be feel like we're in, in, encumbered uh, by the by the photography of it. Is have Will actually perform the the scene, and and we had now the head version of the animatronic and two and the, the legacy guys, you know, underwater, and they're they're you know, fighting him as the best he could so he could react appropriately and, and literally, you know, it's him really doing much of the stuff. The stuff that he couldn't do, we had a stunt double do 
uh, like diving into the water and spinning and rotating and wrestling with the with the with the uh, creature, and and some of it was um, sort of live animation, so that when we did the full CG well and the full CG alligator and the full CG background, it intercut well with the in camera live LED wall footage, the the shot live above ground footage, and uh, and then you know, and I always devise those scenes that you, when you hand off from one shot to the other, even though you're mixing techniques, the action flow creates sort of an invisibility of the cut so that it, 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 it's not alarming. It's like all of a sudden I'm in a different world, different state. It's like the, the, the physical you know, a, a match action of a spin, a turn, a knife thing, whatever that makes the cut work better is when I'm switching different to these different uh, uh, ways of filming it. Because right, I mean, if you yeah, yeah, no, it does. If you actually were soaking in swamp, you wouldn't be able to see anything, right? Because the water density. You, is just you would so see bad. a little bit, depending on how the deeper and deeper you go, and then as soon as you move, you kick up silt that would yeah. completely eliminate your ability to see. So we kept it as logically as one could that it was fairly close to the surface, and that it was deeper than the swamps are actually are. Which uh, VFX houses or teams did you use uh, throughout the film? I use uh, Weta primarily was for the crocodile, or even I call it a crocodile, the alligator um, uh, uh, work. Uh, they did primarily that, th those portions. There's a couple of scenes prior to that where um, the one uh, um, uh, uh, enslaved person that doesn't make it when they escape gets shot and he's in the water, and then three alligators kind of converge on him. They did that. that was in Chris White, I think, at, at Weta, yeah, wasn't it? Chris yeah, Chris White was a terrific guy. And, a really good and guy. He was really enthusiastic about doing this movie. Uh, um, and they were, and they made it work because they were busy. They were doing Avatar and they, they, they made that work for us that, that we can do. Because it was, it was very difficult to try to do something at that level and not have ILM or Weta or, or, or MPC you know, tackle it. So we were very fortunate to get Weta to do that. We had a company called Folks, which was very surprised. They were surprisingly good. I didn't know anything about them. And a friend of mine who worked at Pixamundo um, recommend them. And they did like the fire scenes, the collapsing, you know, plantation house that was on fire and a couple of things. And the mill did the burning horse. Uh, I was always a big fan uh, at the BES Awards when uh, the mill had those commercials, those spectacular commercials they did with orangutans or whatever else. They just, you know, have a real gift for that kind of stuff. So I handpicked them to do the horse because they, you know, I, I think they could really pull it off. Because that is an iconic shot, isn't it? I mean, that uh, that it's so great in the story because you're thinking, is he hallucinating? Is he like, like you know, is he passed out? And then suddenly right. it's like, huh? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the point of that. And that's one of the reasons for its being is Antoine was saying that if you did that journey and you were dehydrated, uh, you, you, you were uh, um, malnourished, you were up crazy hours, you can't really sleep, the hallucinate, hallucinatory state would you start to take over where you think you're seeing something that you may not. So that was why that was included as part of the journey so that you, you as the audience kind of sees it through his eyes and you know is it real i mean can a horse really be on fire um and all that stuff and you know we debated of um how to make the horse react should it react and be in you know incredible you know pain and jumping around and then it felt odd 
and phony and and um, and too real to kind of fit into this motif that is it real? Is it not real? Is it just an odd thing to see that sticks with you? Kind it had of thing. nearly like religious iconography, that kind of like almost like the because there's obviously a strong theme about. Peter's faith, and then this is almost yeah. like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, I, I'm reading a lot into it, but at the time, it's just such a jarring image that your mind is trying to make sense of it. Well, you're hoping that it, it it creates the thing where somebody wants to read into it, and everybody's different version of what they're reading into it is how they were affected by the film. If you, you know, but you were kind of spot on. Is the intention was that is it a hallucination or is it not? Is the burning house? A, a, a hallucination or, or is it not at one point there was going to be a scene where the girl that he finds was his daughter and then later obviously he discovered that it's not but that that's what he thinks he sees in there and for, for i can't i don't remember the reason why we chose not to do that but there was talk of that too and maybe that was considered by antoine to be maybe too much uh hitting it on the head so having an ambiguous who i think was the uh was they were delighted that that's the that's what you got from it because that was literally the intention. So on the day, what did you have happening? Because obviously you're not putting flame bars on a horse. Yeah. No, it, we had um, uh, you know a, a pass where we went through with a with a, a fire bar just to see what it would really look like. You know, uh, it was all, but not to use. It was really just more to study. Um, uh, and then I. Um, uh, and then we just shot real horses going through, and then we had one lone horse go through, and then we uh, 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 animated our own. Uh, the mill animated uh, their own horse, and they added fire to it. And it took a bunch of tries to get it into this sort of taste level that left you hopefully getting the reaction that you got from it, which is if it's yeah, too a lot of, something else. A lot of nice contact lighting on the bushes and stuff around it like because obviously it yeah. really sat in there it wouldn't have happened um from whatever plate you're using with either a horse or whatever um and then the I, house I, I previewed that in i previewed that in unreal where i could actually have you know a light source that was the horse create the interaction so that was my basis of you know if it were real what would it really do and then had um uh, the mill also study that and then say well you know, as it goes by, you have this little subtle uh, interactive light and all that stuff. So it, it, was it was it was very well considered and thought about. I know you just back from another film where you were second unit directing as well. And mm -hmm. I know that you said about that film that you did a bit of your own uh, previs just for your own, as I say, yeah. directing reasons. Is Unreal now your go-to for doing previs for yourself yeah. or? Yeah. yeah. In fact, I mean, these are, you know, I'm here where I did, I previsited the battle scene or in part portions of the battle scene from uh, Emancipation on here. I just did something from the film I worked on with Antoine in Italy uh, where um, I was shooting something and we're running out of time and it was something that I could probably do in CG uh, and, and probably even maybe captured better than I could shooting it live. And um, and I just previewed it. I created it in, in Unreal this morning, and they sent it to them. Uh, so I use it all the time. For people that are listening to this, only that you actually have two uh, wheels there for uh, doing traditional camera. I, I love the fact that you have physical wheels for operating a camera. Obviously, it's digital. That that physicality is like a hallmark of your cinematography yeah, slash I direction. Yeah, I mean, in, in particular because, you know, the easiest thing, it's a joke, um, 
uh, you know, uh, that I, I end up always referring to because uh, it kind of typifies what you should do. It's like, you know, it, doc, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And it's like, well, then don't do that. I mean, it's, it's the, the simplicity of that. It's like, I want to imitate, you know, a real camera. It's like, don't imitate it and use a real camera. Then, then, Am I right then, in thinking that that, that started on the Marty Scorsese Rolling Stones thing at the end of the pullout of that? Is that where you first started? No, it that? started, actually, it started on, uh, believe it or not, on uh, Aviator. Yeah. Uh, that's where the whole sort of um, uh, virtual camera idea came from that I presented to Jim for Avatar. Right. Uh, was come because, you know, that I, uh, I had a frustration on Harry Potter where I couldn't operate the camera myself on the previs. So I could only get to like, you know, 50% of what I would do because, you know, I'm a, I'm a physical, you know, live action sort of oriented person. Yeah. So give me the camera and put a 14 on. Let me try that. And I, I can make these fast iterative decisions and then judge what I'm seeing. But if I tell you to do it and then you don't really put a 14 on, you just put on whatever lens was in the software and then you panned at a, at a, at a different rate than I would. Even it sort of removes the, the art out of my ability to convey my, my point of view. So I always needed something that I could operate myself. And I wanted to, because I'm trying to imitate uh, and create the same sensation that it was filmed like any other thing was filmed, I should use the same equipment. Well, you know, you know there's, a, there's a whole reasonable level of science about the, you know, the idea of intellectualizing something as a, as a kind of a step back in cognitive process versus the immediacy of making that decision in the moment as you're seeing the shot play out. It's a completely different part of your brain that's kind of, you know, well, I, I, liken to, I liken it to music. If you were to tell somebody, I want you yep. to compose some music at a piano, but only play one note and then five minutes later, play the other note and then five minutes later, play the other note. You would be, you wouldn't be able to do it. It'd be completely frustrating. And that's ultimately what you do when you're keyframing a shot. You're like, yeah, I think I would compose here, but I don't know. Cause I would only compose there if it fell through there. And then you put it together and it's like, you know, I don't know that I would do that, but I can't tell you why. And as soon as I pick up the camera, it, it has the flow of, 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 you know, what your attention span is looking at at any one moment and your compositional sense is looking at it in one particular moment. So, you know, to remove it from your, your ability to do that for somebody like me is extremely frustrating. Um, and my, you know, because I'm a live action oriented person, you find these happy accidents when you're aiming at something and you go, oh, you know, that light was really great. I know that I was going to be there. Let me move over a little more and get that reflection. And you're making a thousand little decisions with the idea of here's what I want to do to express this particular moment. And your brain is like working on all cylinders to try to get that. Exactly. You're in the moment. Hey, um, yeah. which brings us to the battle sequence because um, <clears throat> discuss the camera rig that you set up, obviously you did some previous, but how you actually got those um, shots flying over the battle sequence. Uh, yeah, that was primarily done at first, uh, you know, we were, because we hired this um, drone team that we were going to shoot it with drones because, you know, you can't really get equipment to be able to do these kind of camera moves, uh, you know, uh, physically there. So that, that was going to be it. So I started to pre-visit 
And as I started to, again, in Unreal, as I started to pre-visit, you know, again, you still want to come up with a fairly natural camera move that you can get and has to be at a particular place at a particular time. And then one shot becomes another, which becomes another all the way down and you get all the values. And it originally is supposed to be one shot, which we we later just uh, chose not to do it. Um, but as I was doing, it was like there, because I work in the physical world, it's like there is zero chance I'm going to be able to do that. So we have to we have to get a cable cam, which they absolutely said no. It was like there is no way we're getting a cable cam to do this. What's this? That's like stadium level span, though, isn't it? I mean, it looks like a really big because yeah, obviously you can't thousands, see anything. It's thousands of feet uh, yeah. uh, to do it, and it has to be rigged in you know this really you know um, unfriendly landscape, you know, and hide the rigs and the cranes that you need to do it. So it was you know. I, I had to insist on it. And, you know, one of the great things about having a lot of experience is it's the right way to do it. So that's what we're doing. It's, it's, you know, you could be talked out of things and people talk about, you know, how much money it is. It's like, you know how much money it's going to be to redo it a lot more than doing it right the first time. So we're going to do it. So, and then the shots I came up with, um, you know, we liked, uh, uh, and Antoine liked very much and Bob liked very much that, you know, let me, get it with you know uh, physically on the day and so i set up uh it worked with um uh, uh spider cam and they're i've worked with them before and they're really great to work with and uh you know i spent a couple of days you know getting the rigs up doing tests figuring out how to do it figure out how to cue the extras and how and how to get them at particular points when the explosions are going to go off to be to look dangerous but yet be safe and then you know ultimately how i'm going to augment that if i need to with other CG explosions and body parts and various things like that. So, you know, it's a complete, it's a, it's a complete thought. Um, it was a, it was, it was great because of course the visual that I took or the messaging that I took out of that in terms of the subtext was just how insurmountably big yeah. that challenge was to get from there to up here. Right. Like it told that story. Maybe it wasn't in one shot, but it kind of felt like it, but it was like, man, that looks hard. That looks harder. That looks so hard. That looks impossible. You're never going to make it alive. Which is, I presume, and that is the, that is the story. It is a suicide mission. Yeah, it is. There's, you know, it's a little bit like what I learned about D-Day. Uh, just going off on a tangent, if you have a, a minute for it, is you bet. D-Day was, we're going to send all these people in on the front lines, and we're going to send so many of them that the guns are going to heat up and they'll seize up. And so then the people coming in behind them will be able to capture the, the land. So the suicide mission that, that was set up for whoever made that decision, that 15,000 people would die to allow them to actually capture this particular uh, uh, mission is kind of what this was. This was a suicide mission. They sent in these troops to basically wear down uh, um, the the uh, opposition that was insurmountable. They were surrounded on all sides with superior equipment than these guys marching through there. So, you know, the idea that they could even do it uh, uh, was, was uh, crazy and that they could survive it was crazier still, but it did happen. That did occur. And, and we depicted it as realistically as one could, but it condensed because it took, you know, many days to do it. This was not a, a single one day event. From a logistical point of view, when you're filming that, obviously you're considering it as a whole, but you're the second unit director, but by the same token, I presume you're not deferring VFX decisions to anybody else. And in addition to that, you're probably not 
deferring cinematography decisions to anybody else. That's a kind of an overwhelmingly big thing. And then you've got all the choreography and presumably a bunch of uh, assistant directors trying to corral extras and just discuss that if you could. Uh, well, I mean, you know, again, everything is sort of geared towards your own personality. And mine is, um, I, I this will sound odd, but I, you know, I have a right brain, left brain thing where I come up with the idea of the shot and my left brain figures out how to do it uh, at the same time. So um, it's not as insurmountable for me to do it because the conception of the idea and the ability to execute it is kind of comes from the same moment. That's why I kind of like to do it myself. Because I know if on the morning of the shoot, are you like leaning into it going, I can't wait to get through breakfast so I can get on set to do this? Or are you like, okay, Um, deep breath, this is going to be a killer? Well, deep breath is going to be a killer because I, 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 because in your head, things tend to work perfectly. And in real life, (laughs) they don't. And you need the ability to, to ad lib on the day where it's like, yeah, I can't get the camera here, but I could get it here. Uh, it looks odd the way I originally planned where they're running this direction. It looks counter to it. So let me move the camera the other way. You know, you're continually always working on the problem to solve it creatively, uh, uh, to tell that story uh, that particular way. So you're, you're kind of so focused on it um, that you're solving the problems as they occur to achieve an end, like a composer is searching for the right key. I need the right key combination to make the music that I have in my head that I don't even know exactly how to do it directly. I know how to set myself up to allow this to happen. And so, you know, there's a bit of anxiousness when I'm, when I'm um, doing it. There's a bit of, um, you know, the good thing about doing it for as long as I've been doing it is that you have an experience that you know you're going to come up with something. That by the end of the day, you're going to solve some of the problems. It may not be as great as you wanted it to be, but you're pretty sure it's going to be good. And, you know, working with Antoine. It, it was Bob, it was good. But did you know it was good when it was happening or did you know it was good later when you saw the rushes? I knew it was good when it was happening. I knew it was good when we did the, the previs. Okay. Uh, the the, the, the previs is, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's a sure. you know, game-looking thing. But you could get a sense of the uh of what we're trying to achieve from that from the 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 the, the study in motion so it's like if we just set up this playground to allow us to be able to film it even close to what we think we can do we can, and, and then you have the added surprise of the explosions where the guys who did the physical explosions were it was fantastic and it's hard to even calculate what that does to you as you're filming it and as you're performing it, you feel like you're in the middle of a battle. You feel like you're in the middle of chaos. You feel like you are, are, are some of that is rubbing off on you. It's, about, it's sort of like getting a live audience um, uh, input, like if you're a stage performer where you get some juice from the, from the crowd, you're getting a lot of juice from the physicality of it. And uh, it aids to its end when you're looking through the camera and you do this shot and this guy does this and you're, it's, it's planned, but it's not planned. It's like if he is two steps. Well, I was thinking even the smoke from those explosions, you can't accurately predict like the day of the wind. So you could well, do a you, shot, looks. You set up chaos and then, I mean, what my, my, my you know motif is set up real life, then photograph it. But you have to set up real life first. And then somehow the camera was, is going to capture something realistic. If you set up 
you know, phony blocking and, and phony lighting, you know, you, you, the net result is going to be fake. So, but if you set up real life, like if I work with any extras, I give them a human thing to do, not act, you know, have an argument with the guy next to you, tell him a joke, do, do something that is real, that when we film it, we're filming a real moment as opposed to a guy trying to be an actor who's not an actor. Uh, and the same thing with action and battle and whatever is, you need to go from point A to point B. It's gonna be difficult. We're gonna put shit in your way. And all you have to do is just get there and I'm gonna film it. And, and in that process, it will look realistic because we put a bunch of obstacles in your way that if you just forget what you're doing, not act and just do it. That's what we do the same with stunt guys. It's like, do not act, just react to physics. If you get knocked over, don't flail your arms or don't sell it, just do it. Just, just let physics take its, uh, uh, you know, take its toll on you. And then you get things that tend to look realistic. You get things that tend to... Uh, uh, feel like the real thing because you're asking them to do something real. Uh, uh, it know, does sorry. seem like in that moment you you really are melding cinematography, visual effects, direction, it, art direction. It's, like it's all happening. it's all the same. There is no yeah. separate. Certainly, in my career, in my view, visual effects are part are not a separate portion of the movie making process. It is the movie making process. Yep, all of it's fake. There's nothing in it that's real. And so by moving the chessboard around in your favor, where I could get 80% of it live and 20 and 15% as an effect, and another 5% as a sound effect, will tell the cinema story where an off-camera uh, um, you know, noise changes the way you view a scene. Listening to music, you know, as you're prepping this stuff, you know, like I was saying about the shining music. Um, you know, it, it gives you a different um, 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 viewpoint. You know, one of the great directors ever, Peter Weir, would listen to classical music and he, and play it on the set because he felt is like walking through a museum for inspiration. That something about the genius of what you're hearing alters the way you perceive something, and it tends to kind of tr get transmuted into the film. Uh, so you know, I, I you know love that, and I kind of use that. Uh, um, you know, uh, liberally, like from Apollo on is I played heroic music to create the launch sequence to inspire me to put a camera where a camera was and then inspire me to edit it together and then strip it out and give it to Jamie Horner. And Jamie Horner then finds the rhythm that was built in from the inspiration from the music that inspired it. And all of a sudden, you know, it transcends what I hoped it would be. Um, you know, so that, you know, you tend to use things that work in your, in your career. Yeah, I love that you name-checked Apollo. That's one of my favorite films uh, to this day. Hey, um, if I could be so bold, I noticed a couple of names in the end credits that, like Katie and Michael, that looked kind of familiar. Mm -hmm. Can we name-check them? Yes. That, well, my daughter, um, uh, you know, this is, you know, not me just saying this. She turned out to be like one of the best producers I've ever worked with because she's, our whole family, my wife, you know, came out of advertising too, is, is everybody's like a production person. So everybody kind of thinks ahead. Oh, if this happens, then you must need that. If that happens, that must need that. So she had the ability to, um, <clears throat> to foresee all these various things that you would love a producer to do that they don't always do. I mean, she certainly knows me pretty well. So she also knows my temperament and, and everything. Doesn't else. Hurt. So it doesn't hurt at all. And then my son is a, you know, again, this sounds like a proud father, which I am. No, no, but be a proud father. He's, 
He's a, uh, and I'll show you one day, so I'll prove the point. He's a, a brilliant um, uh, uh, photographer in cinematography in, in training. Um, uh, his eye is just one of those things where even when he was a kid, I just would give him a camera. He didn't even know how to operate it. He would just go find these really interesting uh, uh, compositions and light plays and things. And so he has a natural ability. And because he grew up in our family, we're all sort of production oriented people. It's like, oh, if this happens to this, you must take care of that. If that happens, this. So he, he you know, he's, he's not necessarily wanting to do visual effects per se, but he is able to um, use his like live action yeah. eye. Uh, at, at any rate, he's, he's able to kind of capture uh, uh, the idea, if it were live and you're doing this, you might want to move the camera over here. And a lot of times I'll use his suggestions, uh, even though we're doing some visual effect oriented thing. I was like, you know what, here's, here's a better shot from here. And so I ended up, you know, when I needed the help, I called them and they did it and, and uh, worked out great. So we me. started by discussing how miserable the uh, physical environment was with everything from COVID to uh, hurricanes, but hopefully uh, we can finish on this note that it must have been great to actually work with uh, family like that and also to, on such a film with such kind of worthy subject matter. Uh, well, A, you know, to do something serious and worth doing, you know, like, you know, we do whatever movies come out, come our way. Uh, um, and the ones that are most satisfying are the ones that have some other, you know, meaning behind it. And then to have your family work on it and also champion the movie and what your contribution is to the movie and all that in all areas, not just the visual effects, but in the second unit work and whatever. And my son uh, uh, came with me. My daughter came for a little bit, but could could work more remotely because it also was a COVID, a COVID fest there as well, is um, able to just, you know, in off times talk about a scene or a shot or a thing. If I was unsure about something, I'd preview something, you know, just to share that. Um, and we're all striving to do the same thing. We're all striving to have a certain sensitivity uh, to this particular story that needs to be told apparently over and over again until we get the point. Um, so it was it was a very, I have to say, it's an incredibly rewarding experience, very arduous film to do. But when you do something that turns out well for you, it, it's kind of worth it. It's like childbirth, I guess, you know. It's no, just pe rewarding. people don't climb mountains because it's dead easy. Uh, it's rewarding to do that. That's difficult. I get you. Yeah, and if you get to the top of it and you survived it, um, that's that's a that, that, that's a miracle in itself. And uh, no, so it was good. Thank you for asking about them and, and it, and uh, it was a, a, a incredibly rewarding um, uh, experience. And I had a fabulous time with Antoine. He was just a, a dream to work with, and I always I always have a, a good time with Bob. Not every day necessarily, but I have a good time with Bob. <laughs> yeah, you guys have worked quite a few times together on quite a yeah, few. Yeah. <laughs> As, as uh, Martin Scorsese said, um, when we were working on Hugo, it's like, you guys are blood brothers, but I'm pretty sure it's your blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, um, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us again. It's always a pleasure. No, it's my, my pleasure. It's always nice to talk to you. Well, thanks so much to Rob for that uh, great opportunity to discuss uh, such a really interesting film, and hopefully you guys can check it out on uh, Apple+. Plus. So we've got a lot more stuff coming in 23. We hope you're looking forward to it. As you know, we try and focus on some more deep dive stuff here at FX Guide, and we'll continue to uh, do so both with the podcast and on the site. Also, don't forget to check out the courses over at fxphd.com. Um, and... 
as again, on behalf of John and myself and the entire team here at uh, at FX Guide, wished you guys the very, very best for the holiday season and for uh, all of the things that are coming in 23. Thanks so much. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.